welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 65th episode, our guest is Jared Yates Sexton. Jared Yates Sexton is a writer, academic, and author who has published four books of fiction and has had his work appear in the New York Times, The New Republic, Salon, Paste, and elsewhere. His book, The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, A Story of American Rage, will be released by CounterPoint in September. Currently, he serves as an assistant professor of creative writing at Georgia Southern University. And now, on to the show. Hello. Hey, Jared. Hey, how's it going, man? Hey, how are you? I'm well. Cool. Um, Yeah, so uh, go ahead and introduce yourself and let people know uh, whatever you want them to know about you to start with. Sure. Uh, my name is Jerry Sexton, and I've been a contributor to the New York Times, New Republic, and Salon, and Page, uh, and the Day of the Beast. And I have a book forthcoming in September from Counterpoint called The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters on Your Shore, A Story of American Race. Cool, cool. And uh, yeah, I, like I said, I heard you on Trumpcast uh, recently, and I, uh, I instantly knew I wanted to talk to you for a couple reasons. Uh, not the first of which, you made so many good points, as I said. But uh, you're also from southern Indiana, as I am. And uh, I'm from Mitchell, you're from Linton. Uh, for people that didn't grow up in the area we grew up in, how would you describe southern Indiana for those people? Well, you know, I took a job here at Georgia Southern five years ago, and everyone asked me, like, how I was going to get used to the difference between the Midwest and the South, but in all actuality, Southern Indiana is the South. Um, I mean, if you look at linguistic maps and, and things like that, like, the South actually travels up into Indiana, into Southern Indiana, and then dips back down. It's a very... Uh, there are some Midwestern values, but most culturally, it, it most resembles the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and of course, you know, it's uh, adjacent to Kentucky, which was definitely a slave state, so it's, you know, right on that uh, tip, and as you said, there's a lot of influence. Uh, now that you are in the South-South, though, do you, do you find some other differences being where you are now as opposed to Southern Indiana? Sure. I mean, people carry themselves differently, and the politics are, you know, they resemble what they did in Southern Indiana, but, you know, there are some differences. Um, There's definitely much more of a, how do I put this, uh, a much more sort of mannerly way that people carry themselves. Uh, There's not a lot of uh, conflict, uh, except for sometimes there's some pleasantries and passive-aggressive nature. In Southern Indiana, mostly we just avoid talking about anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and mostly we're stoic, uh, and, and down here, I think there's much more of a conversational matter. Interesting. Um, now you generally write fiction, uh, from what I understand. And, uh, but the last year or two, uh, it seems like you've, you've moved a little bit into nonfiction. Can you talk about that transition? Yeah. So I, I have an MFA in fiction from Southern Illinois, Southern Illinois University. I've actually published, um, three collections of fiction uh, in my time. And, but what happened two years ago was I kind of, I've, I've always had an interest in politics, but about two years ago I decided to take an active role in terms of like chronicling what was going to happen. I actually expected the 2016 election to be between Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush. Me too. And <laughs> Yeah. And, and you know, like just thinking about it, I was sort of bored by it. And I told myself that I was going to throw myself into it and sort of understand it in a way that I hadn't before. I was going to 
sort of make up for that lack of enthusiasm by, you know, putting myself into the equation. And uh, about one year ago, actually this week, um, and I've been chronicling the election since summer of 2015, um, about one year ago this week in June of 2016, um, I kind of gained some notoriety for um, my reporting from a Trump rally. And since then, I have been sort of drug kicking and screaming into the the world of politics and punditry, and it hasn't really slowed down in the past year. So I, I still write fiction, and I've actually completed a couple of novels, um, and I'm sort of shopping those around, but I've definitely been focusing more on politics since the rise of Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's funny. I'm sure if you wrote a plot that was the like if you wrote the 2016 election as a as a plot to a book, they would just be like, "This is this is too no, <laughs> I'm sorry, we can't publish this." Well, you know what I mean? It's like it's unrealistic. You know what's actually what's actually funny about that is I wrote a, a dystopian novel where the main villain was a television star mm. turned president, mm. and I actually got some notes on it once from an agent that was like, this is a little far-fetched. Uh, I, I've, I've, I felt a little vindicated, but at the same time terrified, I think, when it, when it came to pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, as far as the, the actual craft of, of writing fiction and writing nonfiction, what, what is the overlap and what is the new uh, experiences for you as a writer? Well, you know, I was thinking about this the other day because actually somebody said to me, um, and, and, you know, this was sort of a compliment, but at the same time, I think there's a matter of suspicion in there. And it's like, well, you, you have a lot of narratives and your reporting that sort of like end up um, fitting very well. And I actually think the difference between the two is, uh, I, I think it's understanding how narrative works. So, for instance, in nonfiction, I'm given a finite amount of, of things that I can use, right? Um, you know, I've had so many experiences inside of like, you know, real experiences and you sort of look at the narrative and you figure out how all of this stuff fits together to form a story as opposed to deciding what a story is going to be and then creating facts and characters Mm -hmm. that go into it. So, so in essence, I think nonfiction is a little bit more about, um, editing mm-hmm. and and sort of like um, trimming and, mm-hmm. and shaping scope as opposed to where fiction of course is, is mm-hmm. mostly wholesale creation right right well um, it made me think of uh, reading your writing made me think of uh, David Foster Wallace and kind of how he jumped between fiction and, and nonfiction um, and I've also heard later though that his, some of his nonfiction may not have been com- completely accurate uh, there may have been some imagined parts as there have been in other people that, you know, like David Sedaris, I've read, has some, you know, we don't know if we can call some of those stories nonfiction anymore, but... Um, well, I think I think David Foster Wallace sort of existed in his own universe. It's true. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think you look at him and his writing, and I think he was more of a... Um, I think he was sort of trapped in his own sort of cerebral nature, and mm-hmm. as a result, you know, you can never really tell what's happening in his writing. Like, mm-hmm. you can never tell exactly if he's going over some philosophical idea, some personal idea, or what. It's sort of hard to keep track, because that guy's mind was a, a series of mazes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> have you have you actually read Infinite Jest yet? Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> there are two yeah, very crisp uh, copies that my wife and I bought in a moment of uh, in- inspiration a couple years ago that, uh, well, you know, you know till two children later have still remained unread. But <laughs> You know, it's one, it's one of those funny things, and, and I don't know if you got to this point, but there was this moment of panic, and I tell my students this because every summer I always have fiction students who are like, I'm going to read Infinite Jest this summer, and I'm like, well, the first thing you have to do is you have to get two bookmarks because there are two books going on within the one book. You have the main thread of the novel, and then you have the footnotes or the, the end notes, I guess you would call them. And I'll never forget the moment where I got to my first end note that went on for like 12 pages. And I just had like this existential panic trying to go back and forth between these two things. Uh, it's just a job. Uh-huh. It's, just a, it's basically a part-time job. Yeah. Yeah. I went to a friend's house once and he uh, proudly had that sitting there with the bookmark defiantly like a third of the way through it. Like he was like, it, it, it seemed very like, yeah. <laughs> I, think so. a lo- I think a lot of people have that out. For people to see. You know what I mean? I think a lot of people very happy to have that yeah yeah be, be seen with that yeah absolutely mm-hmm. um yeah um has it been hard to focus on fiction though with with everything happening in the world i mean i i wonder how your fiction writing and your nonfiction writing how you've kept both those threads going uh, in an age where i feel guilty uh if if i don't write something about what's happening even though it's like God, i'd like to look away and do something else but it seems so important to stay engaged Yeah, well, you know, yeah, it has been, it's been difficult. So when this whole thing blew up, I was in the middle of writing a novel that, you know, I'm now sort of looking at and, you know, sort of eyeing it for spare parts. You know what I mean? I'm like, this one probably, it's it's like 98% done, but I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's the right book. So I kind of look at that like that. And then I have this other novel that I really, really want to write, but I actually have another book that's due um, in early 2018. So now I got to write that book and keep this novel sort of going in my head. But when I look at it, uh, and, and I think this is the difference between writing about like the Trump administration or writing a novel, I think the novel, and you know, I think um, David Foster Wallace is part of this too. I think that's where I'm going to work out more of the sort of existential abstract thoughts that I have. Mm-hmm. So, like, one of the big things that I'm thinking about now is um, this idea of reality and how reality is changing to be this subjective thing that it didn't used to be, and and what happens when everyone is living in their own subjective reality. The people who then accept objective reality have an advantage over the people who are trying to sculpt their own. Mm. So, you know, it's hard to write an article about that. Mm. <laughs> like that's, that's more of an abstract sort of a deal. So I think fiction for me is going to stick with these more philosophical ideas. But, um, I mean, I work every day on this documenting the disaster that is Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And, and that takes up a lot of time. It takes up a lot of headspace. It takes up a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And so it, it definitely has been a, a hamper on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have a weekly column in the paper and, uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know what, what percentage of my readers at, by this point, but I'm sure a sizable percentage wish I would write about anything else, uh, <laughs> other than Trump. But it, it, I don't feel like, you know, I can look away. I can't like this is well, happening. You? Yeah. Well, well, and that's another thing. Um, I don't Have you read, um, there's this really book called really good book called the invention of Russia. Have you seen this? Mm-mm. The Invention of Russia is by this Russian journalist who, it's it's all about the movement from Mikhail Gorbachev 
to Vladimir Putin. Mm. And basically, his thesis is that Putin's lying and manipulation and sort of outright um, lack of ethics, which is, you know, putting him out, like, uh, basically exhausted the Russian people to the point where they just said, do whatever you want, we're tired, we don't want anything to do with this anymore. And I feel like we're in the early stages of something resembling that, mm-hmm. and it's it would be the easiest thing in the world to stop because of exhaustion, but I think at this point it's, it's wildly dangerous to do so. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I mean, if you, uh, you know, you do allow yourself the luxury of looking away, I guess. I, I think of it as a luxury. You're, you're, uh, you know, you're normalizing it to a certain degree because then you're not saying this is abnormal anymore. So, yeah. Um. And the moment that you do that, I think that the battle is lost mm-hmm. because, you know, I think one of the reasons that, and there are many, I think one of the reasons why we're in this situation we are is because so many people, um, acquiesced the, the responsibility of being a citizen and, you know, of voting and staying informed and staying awake in the, in the face of all this stuff. And, you know, the, the more that we do that, the more that we just sort of allow government to do what it does and allow politicians to do what they do. I think the further we sink into this hole and, and there's going to come a certain point where, if we abdicate that responsibility so much, there's there's not going to be a responsibility anymore. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I want to hear uh, a little bit about your your experiences firsthand at Trump rallies. Like, who who do you see there? I, I haven't been to one. Uh, of course, Indiana, where I am, is uh, it was the last stand of, of Trump and Cruz and Kasich, and Kasich had a, a event I was scheduled to go to, and then he pulled out and backed Cruz <laughs> because they were going to split oh, the yeah. states up or whatever. Um, but anyway, that's as close as I got. Oh, I met Bill Clinton twice. Um, so <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> yeah, um, it's funny. I haven't thought about that strategy that they tried for a long time now. Yeah. What a terrible strategy that yeah. was where they were all like, you're going to vote for Rubio in Florida. Oh, that's right. Yeah, oh, they were. Man, what a disaster! <laughs> yes, the, the 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 road to victory is paved with. No, it's not. This is a terrible idea. No, it's not. <laughs> so what I've seen, um, and I actually one of the rallies I went to was in Indiana. It was uh, it was in a suburb around Indianapolis. Uh, oh, was it in uh, Carmel? It was maybe it was a little bit north of Carmel. Um, it was. I can't remember the actual name of the place, but okay. so it was inside like this sports complex. And mm. It was. It was a disaster. Anyway, <laughs> so that was. You know, that's where he took Pence out for a, a, a test drive. Although, based on the reporting I'd done, he had actually already decided on Pence like a week earlier. But anyway, so that 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 rally was a good microcosm of of what I've seen, and and you know, a lot of people I've talked to just assume it's like poor, ignorant people who go to these rallies. And it's mm-hmm. not, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a, it's a stratification of, of class. I mean, you have wealthy people there and I'll, and I'll tell you this right now, Trump is very popular among country club types. They love Trump in this country club atmosphere. Um, they, I mean, you also have middle-class people who are showing up to do it. You have poor people yeah. showing up to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost exclusively, it's all white. Um, mm-hmm. It's not all men. 
there are a lot of women there too. Um, but more or less, what I what I noticed on the campaign trail was all of these rallies had something in common, and that was the people who went to them obviously relished being around each other and knowing that when they were around each other, when they were at these rallies, that they were in a space where they could say anything they wanted. And this is where political correctness actually got sort of, you know, broken open. And what I think I saw was a group of people who have felt sort of beat back by the expectations of, of political correctness and, and societal politeness. And I think that they obviously wanted to be around other like-minded people. And so as a result, when they got around each other and they felt that sort of freedom, the things that they said and did were really, really terrible. I mean, just, you know, open racism, open misogyny, open uh, xenophobia, uh, everything you can imagine, every slur you can imagine um, was said in this space because I think these people felt comfortable around each other and were finally able to sort of break out of whatever societal shell they'd been in. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, I saw in an article you described that as a safe space uh, with a a (laughs) little wink to their, uh, you know, terminology there for uh, you know, and I do think that's something interesting about Trump himself. Um, he's just such like he's for uh, being this manly man. Supposedly, uh, he seems pretty thin-skinned and pretty weak as far as his like response. Every little bump in the road is is a huge earthquake to him. And, and this is another well, case of of them kind of maybe projecting their own things onto other people to say, "Oh, you need a safe space," and you know. Oh well, you know that's the th- so the thing I'm actually working on right now is. Uh, is sort of weird intersection between what we're talking about and also the idea of like toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. So I'm studying a lot about, you know, um, this idea of like what it is to be masculine and what it means and the sort of side effects of it. And the funniest thing about it is I I think it's interesting you described it as, you know, he sort of carries himself like he's a man's man, but in essence, being a quote unquote man's man or being masculine or whatever is actually just a thinly veiled veneer, right? Like, like mm-hmm. you're obviously acting in this manner because you're insecure. And as a result, all these people who like point out quote unquote safe spaces and snowflakes, they're projecting, mm-hmm. you know, they can't, they can't handle, um, dissonant opinions. They can't handle people who disagree with them and they have to shut them down. And in essence, what they're doing is the exact same thing that they're like tutting and people and like, you know, waving mm-hmm. their finger at them because they are, weak and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right. That's that's how Trump is and that's how his supporters are. Yeah. And then, uh, and this is something else I was going to ask you about later, but, you know, they're always like, oh, free speech on campus. Why won't you let the speaker speak? Um, you know, I went to an Ann Coulter reading at IU once at the at the, at the um, IU Auditorium. Um, I actually saw a nice old teacher that I was working at elementary school at the time, and she was the nicest lady in the world, and she was just at, like, it was a night at the theater, you know, to go see i went with my my friend Corey, and we were just going to witness the horror and this was like we, we saw her there and i was like oh no don't let me see her and she was like she just you know yeah. nice night out and this is exactly who you describe at these trump rallies too and i think that's an important point to make because they're always like oh we need to understand this very specific person who was for trump and it's like no there were other people that you know weren't like living in a trailer park 
who uh, were, were voting for this guy because they felt some something else. They felt some identities. They felt, um, you know, I think I just feel like there's such resentment for, for, for white people who support Trump, I think, because they don't get to nobody cares about their problems, really. They don't feel. And I think that he definitely knows how to capitalize on that feeling they have. Well, somebody said something. I, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was, I, I just read Maureen Dowd's book uh, last week, so maybe it was her. I think one of the powers that Trump has, and, and one of the reasons he's had such staying power, is because even when he is lying, and even when he is baiting people into these terrible opinions, there's always a nugget of truth in what he is saying. Mm-hmm. There's just a tiny tiny little grain of truth that everything can build around. So, for instance, um, you know, we're both from Indiana. Um, I don't know your socioeconomic background, but I can say that I grew up dirt poor. I grew up with a uh, factory family. Anybody who didn't work in a factory worked in a coal mine or else was out on disability. I mean, this is a group of people who, you know, everyone uses that phrase, left behind by the economy, but these are people who were, you know, left miles behind by the economy. And he is not wrong when he says that those people were mistreated. He's not wrong when he says that the media, which is a co- which is made up mostly of what he calls coastal elites or whatever, uh, he's not wrong when he says that they have ignored Middle America. They have, and as a result, we have a group of people who are angry, who have wanted to be heard, and now they have the loudest voice in the room. And so as a result, they will go along with a lot of the the most ugly, awful things about him, which in essence they believe because of socioeconomic reasons, and they will let him play on their racism and their sexism and their xenophobia. And and I, I think that's where that sort of allegiance to him comes from. I don't think it's political. I think it's cultural. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big mistake that we've made is they don't care what he does politically. Mm-hmm. They don't care what legislation he passes. They care more that they can, you know, fly a Trump sign and that they can piss people off by wearing a Make America Great Again hat. Yeah. This is this is not about a political allegiance. This is more about a uh, cultural identifier, I think. Yeah, that's some great great observations there. Yeah, no, I uh, every day to work I drive between Noblesville and Kokomo, and there's a uh, there's a trailer park, a rather sizable one, right before you get to Kokomo, and it has like three or, three or four flags, and it's of course the American flag, and I think a POW and one of the branches of the military, and the other one is a Trump make America America great in front of a. Uh, a trailer park and yeah it's it's not about i don't think it's it's more and this is something i definitely want to ask you about later it's it's more than just uh like you said they don't care what actual policies go into effect it's just how he makes them feel um and in that way it's very hard to talk them out of that i've, I've found <laughs> yeah I've, I've gotten to the point and and you know it's the funniest thing before i started covering this campaign i was sort of in this um, very pessimistic place in my life, you know, and, you know, sometimes in your life it's easier for, like, nihilism to sort of creep in and take over. Uh, but then I started covering this thing, and I started seeing the ugliness up close, and I started talking to these people, and I started seeing Trump gain points and the system fail, and then, you know, I started getting these death threats and people showing up at my house in the middle of the night and all mm. this stuff. And I sort of had this moment where I was like, I can't be nihilist anymore. I have to have some hope. But I will tell you that as of late, the thing that has 
sapped my hope and, and made me feel a little bit more pessimistic is the fact that it does appear that these people are not going to turn their backs on him. It doesn't matter what campaign promises he, he doesn't fulfill or just blatantly tosses away. They have aligned themselves with him, and there has been a certain amount of weight that has been gained from that that it's it's almost impossible to to throw away. I think I think we're looking at, and I wrote this, uh, I believe, on Twitter the other day. I think we're looking at this generation and maybe another generation of Trump supporters because you know we have kids who are being raised up to believe in this guy as if he's infallible. And I don't see how it goes away in between now and then. Mm-hmm. I just don't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like they always talk about his approval rating, always sinking. But there's always that that nice steady floor that, that never seems to go away. Um, and there really doesn't seem to be any. You know, of course, I don't know if you've read, you've probably read the Steele dossier, I assume. Um, what if every single thing in that is true? What if every, What if we find out for a fact we've seen it, we know? Everything's been verified. It's open. I'm not. I used to believe. I guess this was a belief and a hope and a wish that if that something that mag, mag, you know catastrophic were to happen, uh, that it would be over. They'd pull the plug on this. But you know, maybe I should have known better after the Access Hollywood thing. Um. Well, but that's the thing, right? Is you know, when when you talk to people, and, and this really, and again, I keep using the word cultural because I've gotten. I've been I've been very careful not to use the word religious, right? Um, there is a certain amount of faith in this and in a self inoculation with the Trump voter. I mean, they you know at this point the smartest thing he ever did, and I just wrote about this today. Um, the smartest thing he ever did is he cut off his supporters from any outlet that could possibly say he was wrong. He he did away with CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, Washington Post, and eventually Fox News, which left him as the only arbiter of truth, which is just an ingenious move on his part, but it's frightening. Um, Even if that dossier comes out as completely true, one of two things is going to happen. And and by the way, there probably will be pockets of people who would leave. You know, I assume there are pockets of people who have already regret voting for him in the first place. I think one of two things will happen. Either one, a group of people will say, well, I'm glad he did it. It shows he's smart. Yep. Right? He made a deal, and I mean, that's what we need. because I, I don't know how many people you've talked to like this, but there are people who still stand by Nixon today, and they're like, well, he just got caught doing what everybody else did. Mm-hmm. So there's a group of people who will inoculate themselves that way. And there's another group of people, probably the larger group of people, who would probably go ahead and say that even all of the confirmation would be fabricated. You know, they would say yeah. that there's just no way that any of it's true and fake news. it's all fake and everything's fake. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think he was 100% right, which is so scary, you know, saying that he could shoot from my own Fifth Avenue mm-hmm. and wouldn't lose a vote. Mm-hmm. Um, there is truth to that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's because he has, he's inoculated and isolated his supporters. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Um, whew, yeah, it's heavy, heavy stuff. But um, I, uh, I once interviewed a survivor of Jonestown, and oh, yeah. I 
can't help but draw some connections. Uh, had a Dr. Elizabeth Yuko, who had an article that she wrote um, that was uh, talking to a cult deprogrammer, and, and he was talking about similarities. You've, you've written things to this effect. Uh, do you think there's a cult like, there's a cult of personality, I think, at least, if not just an outright cult? Yeah, you know, I. I, I have. I've sort of like towed up to that line a little bit, and I've I've gotten a lot of crap for that. But I'll tell you what I saw, and what I saw was in the wake of that Access Hollywood tape, um, something really changed. Um, something was obvious there that these people were they were with him in a way that wasn't normal, right? I actually write about this in the book, um, and that is that every successful political campaign is a cult of personality. Um, you know, you look at how Barack Obama sort of ascended to the presidency. I mean, that was a cult of personality, right? I mean, that was a that was a person who could inspire people, and they believed him, believed in him, even though there were like you know some problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but usually, if a person wins the presidency, the first thing that they do is they shed the cult of personality. Personality, right? They're like, I've gotten here and now I'm a legislator. Um, Trump's not like that. And what's scary about it is his followers have had to basically. Uh, so, so for instance, if you say you're a Trump supporter, uh, if you make it open, if you go on Facebook and you say it, or you go on Twitter and say it, there are a group of people who you are friends with who will unfriend you, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they would just say, no, we're done. That's the end of it. And we're talking family members, we're talking uh, colleagues, we're talking close acquaintances, all these people. They would unfriend you. Um, that isolates you. Right. So mm-hmm. if you say I'm a Trump supporter and everyone unfriends you and everyone basically eschews you, um, the only people you have left are Trump supporters. Right. They're mm-hmm. your new family. Mm-hmm. And as a result, your identity and your worldview depends on that continuing. So as a result, every time that somebody says Trump is bad, you now have a cognitive decision that your mind makes without you realizing it, which is, do I shed my entire identity and admit that I'm living a lie, or do I buy in further? And it's easier to buy in further. Mm -hmm. Um, In the wake of the Access Hollywood thing, all these people had already been isolated, and they had to make a decision. Do I believe the guy that I have basically devoted my entire life to now is a sexual, uh, like, uh, uh, you know, assaulter, or are these people wrong? And they chose that the people were wrong, even though the evidence was there. Um, it is a cult mentality, more than we've probably ever seen in politics before. And I think the sooner that we come to realization that that is the case, that's the sooner we can start dealing with it. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we we uh, got way off into the weeds there, but I, that was a good <laughs> that was a good line of thinking. But I did want to uh, not breeze past something that you brought up that I want to ask you about, oh, yeah. which was uh, toxic masculinity. Um, yeah. Can you just just describe what that is, to, like define it for us, uh, just right off the top here? Sure. Toxic masculinity is when the traditional ideas of masculinity, which is like sort of independence, stoicism, uh, aggression, these sort of things that we usually just associate with men off off the top of our heads, these societal expectations. It's when those turn um, um, negative in manner. So, for instance, if, you know, you have a, a husband or a, a dad or a son or a brother, someone in your life who their masculine roles 
are leading them to harm others, whether or not it's emotionally, physically, sexually, um, mentally, any of those ways, that's when it turns toxic. So, for instance, um, this is a ridiculous thing, but, you know, it's like if you're driving down the road and somebody in a jacked-up pickup truck, like, you know, they obviously are compensating or they're, they're handling themselves in a certain way. If they, like, did, like, you know, pass you, nearly run you off the road, or just in everyday sexism or the mistreatment of individuals or as bad as, you know, rape or, or um, sexual harassment. Like, you have all these different types of things that are side effects of the sort of uh, mental problems that come from trying to keep up what is essentially not an organic behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and this is a topic I I think about a lot because I I do have an almost three year old son and I have a, a two mm-hmm. two week old daughter too, so I'm thinking from that angle as well. <laughs> so I've got it from I got it from both sides, but um, you know I want to raise him to not do that <laughs> if I can. Uh, uh, sure. If, what would you say to somebody like me that that's raising a son right now? Well, I'll be honest, just the very fact that you're asking that bodes well. I mean, you know, one of the things that happened to me is I was raised up in a culture where it wasn't even considered how to raise a son, right? You raise a son up to be tough. You raise a son up to not have emotions. You raise a son up not to really talk about things. Boys don't cry, things like that. Um, You basically let this person know that if, you know, if they want to like trucks, playing basketball and stuff, that's totally fine, but that's not an identity, right? An identity as a person is to take care of people and to take care of yourself, and toxic masculinity is basically allergic to taking care of anybody. Mm-hmm. It basically says that a man's, man's entire goal in life is to work and basically work himself to death while not being close to anybody because that means you're less of a man. And so you hurt everyone around you and yourself. Hmm. And so basically just by teaching them to be empathic and to be a a good, sensitive, expressive person, I think Mm -hmm. that takes care of it. Although, I mean, society plays, you know, plays a role in it too. I Mm -hmm. mean, they're going to be around boys at school. They're going to watch TV. They're going to watch shows. They're going to be influenced by culture. So, I mean, it's, you know, it takes a pretty constant, uh, reiteration of that, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's because I want him to be able to express the fact that he is a man in a healthy way. I don't think that he should be totally stifled. Um, you know, I've, I've seen it go too far. I've seen people that had the right idea about it, you know, maybe, I don't know, uh, stifle in some way, the natural masculinity, the not, the non-toxic, <laughs> the organic masculinity, <laughs> um, for, you know, no, so. it's, it's an easy thing. I mean, it's a, it's a really, really easy thing to happen because it's sort of in, in culture and, 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 you know, there's a difference between nature and, culture in culture it's the default thing mm-hmm. right you, you just you you just experience life and you end up a certain way but like naturally this kind of stuff it, it isn't the way it works you know it's like mm-hmm. boys don't come out of the womb like liking the color blue or wanting to you know mm-hmm. go work manually or whatever mm-hmm. um but basically if you just teach them it's okay because in all essence the actual um the things that socialize masculinity are actually abusive behaviors. We're talking about um, we're talking about physically, physical and emotional abuse from father figures, and we're talking about bullying, which is just physical and emotional abuse from peers. And so, if you actually counteract those things, I think I think your kid's going to be okay. But 
if if those things are are ever present, then you're going to have what we would call toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Now, how specifically does I? I mean, I have my own theories about this, and I know you, you do too. But like, how do you how do you fit that in with with Trump? Uh, it kind of maybe relates back to how people felt empowered to, to express that around. And you know, he he just reminds me of like old school, like you know, you, he, Dean Martin, like that's his like you know uh, <laughs> chitter chatter on stage and stuff. It reminds me of like a second rate you know Rat Pack thing. Uh, that's sometimes so interesting. I, you know, I, I, I've heard that a couple of times in the past week. I've heard people start referring to this Rat Pack thing, which mm-hmm. is so interesting. I, I, I hadn't thought about it in that way. But I know where I heard it. It was on WTF, and it was when he interviewed Jeffrey Ross. Oh, okay. okay. So he knows a lot okay. about old-timey comedy, so I think right. he made that, that connection. And he also it knows Trump, been, so yeah. It might have been Maureen Dowd again because I, mm. I sort of had that on in the background while I was traveling. So mm-hmm. I think that I think this toxic masculinity thing is completely tied into the Trump situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Trump carries himself the way that I think masculine, toxic masculine men want to carry themselves, right? Like they don't care about women. They treat women badly. Nothing hurts them. They never have to apologize. They can say what they want and not worry about it. Mm-hmm. And and meanwhile, by the way, Trump is, like you said, completely thin-skinned, totally emotional and reactive. He's everything in in, in actuality that, that he claims not to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but these are a lot of people, and you know, I'll talk to family and I'll talk to friends back home, things like that. A lot of people feel like they can't be men anymore. Right, because you know we've seen the rise, especially in like social media and in culture, we've seen the rise of progressivism and and social justice and feminism. You know, feminism has definitely become a much more accepted, regular part of society. Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of a lot of men, especially in these places where uh, you know they've been "quote unquote" left behind, we're talking middle America, in a lot of places like that. It's the only thing they have left. They don't have the jobs that necessitated it because in all actuality, labor used to necessitate masculinity. The reason why you didn't complain, the reason why you didn't talk about your feelings is because you worked 12 hours a day in a factory, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it killed you and having emotions didn't help you in a factory. So these things sort of work together. Now they don't have those jobs. All they have is the cultural identity of the quote unquote man, mm-hmm. right? And so now you have a group of people who feel frustrated, they feel lost, they feel like they don't have an answer outside of it, nor do they think that there is such a thing as an answer because they don't know that this isn't normal. And they have a guy who's behaving the way they would want to and set, you know, basically says that political correct culture isn't right, and so that's who they're going with. And, and Trump is absolutely an icon for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. He he's the thing that like he, he lives out the way that they would like to be. Um, you know, and they're in their worst <laughs> selves, I guess. Um, gosh, we've talked about so much. This is great. Um, <laughs> you you have, uh, as you mentioned, received a lot of pushback from uh, the basket of deplorables, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Have you honestly feared for your safety? You talked about people showing up at your house. Like, what what extent has it gotten for you as somebody that has spoken up about these things? Uh, you know, the, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I have 
feared for my safety. I mean, when I first started getting these death threats and when I started, you know, I, I had this night, um, the, the first time it happened, I've actually had a couple times where people have sort of tried to get in my house while I wasn't here. Oh my um, goodness. I, I had one, I had one night where, you know, somebody circled my house, kept, you know, pulling into my driveway and stuff. And, you know, it was obvious that they were, you know, trying to intimidate me or whatever. Hmm. Um, I did fear for my safety there for a while. I mean, I had to, uh, I had to put in like a security system um, and all the stuff that, that, you know, eventually, and I, I got like a lot more death threats than that. Um, I, uh, I kind of got used to it. You know what I mean? Like it just sort of, it just sort of turned into the norm. And when it's the norm, um, you just you just get used to whatever life you're put into after a while, and so now when I get these threats and I get all this pushback, I'm just like, okay, this is this is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry that happens. That's horrible. Um, you know, nobody should think that's uh, okay to do somebody. And you know, I was very interested slash horrified to find that when I read your article about getting harassed online, you uh, linked back to some of the Twitter accounts that um, you know that that you know made these horrible some of the just some of the horrible remarks to you. And they're still active. It seems like they're still going. A lot of them. And I think Twitter, especially, has been uh, appallingly bad at dealing with its like bots and trolls and anonymous people like jumping back on after they've been banned. And uh, you know, what, what's your what's your take on on their responsibility and how they've carried themselves as a company? Well, you know, the, the weird thing here is that I I have had a, a great deal of, of professional success because of Twitter. Um, I don't think that I would have received the attention I did and or my life would have taken this turn if it wasn't for Twitter. So there's there's a double-edged thing going there because I think a large deal of Twitter is actually uh, harassing language and harassing behavior. And I think that there are so many people who engage in that, and there is so much ill intention on that website in order for them to completely take care of it, I mean, it would wipe out a large part of their clientele. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I used to hope that maybe they would ban Trump from Twitter, but I don't think that'll ever happen. <laughs> never, never, never. <laughs> He's the best thing that ever happened to them. Yeah. Likewise, I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's terrible. What about Facebook? How do you think they're doing? Well, you know, Facebook's a different story altogether. Um, Facebook actually has this added level where it's like no one's on there anonymously. You know what I mean? So hmm. so you have like a name and a face usually attached to it, so it's not there. I mean, I get enough threats on, on Facebook, but they're, they're different. You know, these people sort of have to stand by what they're saying. Hmm. The problem with Facebook is, um, well... If I said the problem, I'd be underselling the issue. There are many, many, many problems with Facebook, and I, I, I don't think I don't think within our generation we're going to understand how much damage it's done to society. Uh, we actually now have a situation where, and, and I found this in my reporting, and it scared the hell out of me. So you have this idea of fake news that got spread right by pro-Trump forces and pro-Trump bots and trolls. What had actually happened was, I don't know if you remember this, but um, last year, maybe a year and a half, 
Facebook got found out because their algorithm was hurting right-wing news stories mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and right-wing sources. And so they recalibrated um, their algorithm in the in the wake of that, and it actually amplified right-wing mm-hmm. sources, which is actually what pushed the fake news epidemic mm-hmm. and quite possibly could have changed the results of the election. Wow. Yeah, I think they, um, and I will include Twitter on this, and I only, I only have 600 followers, so I'll say what I want about Twitter. <laughs> um, you know, like, uh, Twitter, you know, it is different. You're right. Uh, Facebook and Twitter is, is different. But, yeah, the fake news problem on, on Facebook has been, has been just abominable, and I feel like they've tamped it down. I don't see as much of that stuff, although, like you said before, maybe I just unfriended or got unfriended by all the people who were posting those, so maybe who knows. <laughs> <laughs> they may just be going strong as ever, and I just don't see them anymore. Um, but, you know, with, with Facebook, uh, they've really, yeah, you're right, they've allowed this uh, to fester in the comments sections especially, I feel, are, are especially mm-hmm. bad. Um, I just had to give up uh, on re- reading the Facebook comments at a certain point. Um, but oh, just slightly related issue that I wanted to talk about that, that kind of relates to fake news is, have you heard about this software that can simulate people's voices and conversations and stuff almost – no. Okay. So they're working on this technology. It still sounds robotic. It's still clunky. It's still not where it's you know need to be. But you can you can see where they're going with this. It seems like they're pretty close to what they want to do. Where they can take they have enough tape of, of people talking. They can make a manufactured conversation out of that sounds will sound indistinguishable from reality. And the the article I read this about was in reference to the James Comey quote unquote tapes. Um, you know what if there was a tape release, but it was fake and it was, you know, made up to sound like this. So I think technology, you know, we're, I don't know how we get ahead of the fake news problem. That's one thing I wanted to ask you about, but you know, what if they can fabricate evidence for real and like, you know, maybe be like, make a tape where James Comey doesn't do what he said he did. So, man, that is okay. So that is one of the larger problems. And you want to talk about like (laughs) the sort of esoteric nature of this thing. Um, so what we're actually looking at is we're we're looking at a sort of shredding of the idea of reality, right? Like whether or not we can actually live in a place where we can trust what it is we see and hear and feel. Um, if we get to that point where these things can be readily made and done, I, I don't know what you do. I, I really don't. I, because, because in all honesty, one thing I'm afraid of, um, and I think about this a lot. So, you know, we have email, we have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have a lot of like private messaging, uh, things, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens, you know, when and if somebody starts releasing fake emails, like they tried to do with Macron? Um, you know, we have a bunch of stuff that we couldn't verify what it was, but once it's out there, it changes the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know that we can validate the legitimacy of emails anymore and messages. What happens when actual stuff starts going out there? And it's such a volume of things that we can't tell what's real and what's not. And so as a result, because we don't have an objective reality, I don't know how we can have an objective society. Mm-hmm. And so what I think we're actually looking at long term, and this is one of those things that I'm trying to wrap my head around. And, you know, it's like trying to think about the beginning of the world or the end of the world. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of go colorblind after a while. Um, we're, we're not growing closer and the, and the arc of society is not to grow closer. The arc of society is to grow farther apart. 
Hmm. And 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 into our own individual spaces. And now that we're sort of living in a world where you can choose your individual space and your individual mm-hmm. reality, I don't know how a country functions like that. Yeah, I don't know how uh, a, a proper society works when there's not objectiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing that I've tried to keep my eye on the ball of, you know, when they do this, uh, you know, alternative facts thing is I always make sure to be like, oh, nope, not mm, noting that, noting that, you know, slaves are not immigrants. Sorry, Frederick Douglass is not out there doing great things and being recognized more and more, you notice. Like, it it seems petty to people on the outside, maybe, but I think it's important to keep your eye on that kind of stuff because they, they, they twist, they, they pervert the language, as my friend Jonathan said, they, they twist reality like you're saying a little bit you know they, they turn the screws ever so you know tightly and that's that's why I've only seen three episodes of The Handmaid's Tale and probably will keep it there for quite a while until this uh, until what's happening in reality reality isn't happening anymore <laughs> well and that, that's the other thing about it is I, I, I don't know the thing that keeps me up at night is whether or not whether or not this is an aberration or if this mm-hmm. is the opening to something new. Yeah, right. Um, and, and and the more that I watch it, because, you know, the the really disheartening thing is you, you watch Comey's testimony and then you watch Sessions' testimony. <clears throat> and you watch one thing after another where it's blatant that the Trump White House is not only running a grift, but they're running a very transparent grift. Mm-hmm. Um, in the past, and, and this is something I'm definitely trying to work my head around because, again, this will make you, you know, go cross-eyed. Um, society is an agreed-upon reality, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. we, we say these are rules. It's like playing baseball or playing basketball. Like, this is out of bounds and this is in bounds. If you step out of bounds, there's a consequence. You lose possession, right? Mm-hmm. Um in politics, it runs the exact same way, only it's not working that way anymore. Mm-hmm. In the past, there were, like, actual consequences for doing things wrong. Now, there are no consequences. And once there are consequences for doing things wrong, how do you function within this anymore? And the Trump administration and the Trump campaign and Trump himself are literally just lying openly mm-hmm. and, and doing things in the open that are wrong. And no one will do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And so once that gets set, you look at something like Putin, which is how he built his entire empire. Mm -hmm. It's based on stretching these lines until Mm -hmm. they break. Mm -hmm. And 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 that's one of the scariest things. Um, We're getting near the hour mark, and I know that your time is valuable, so I want to get just a few more things in. Um, As a a creative writing teacher, uh, what is your general advice for young writers, and uh, kind of especially for people that are trying to do like freelance writing? You've been uh, pretty successful, and uh, I just really enjoy your, your stuff, by the way. I just uh, can't tell you how much uh, you remind me of all my favorite writers, uh, like Hunter S. Thompson and, and all that, so I, I feel like your your writing's right in there, so uh, what would you... Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, absolutely, and, and that's... Uh, part of why I knew we'd have a great conversation is because, yeah, your, your voice comes through very clear, and yeah, I definitely think you're in that uh, tradition. But anyway, that's, that's separate from the point. What's your advice uh, as somebody like that? Well, I really appreciate that, man. Um, so basically, uh, I mean, what I've learned, and you know, I've been teaching writing at the collegiate level now for like 12 years, and so the advice I have, I, I don't think it's like the most inspiring or sort of like mind-breaking advice, but the honest to God, truth of it is, you have to you have to work. 
you know, um, I got extraordinarily lucky to have been in the right place at the right time. But I, my, my career would not have broken open if I wasn't just driving to events every moment that I possibly had on every free day that I had, spending my own money and going to these rallies on my own. It just wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically what I've had to tell students is you have to read a lot, read way, way more than you think that you need to read, and you need to write a lot. And, and in all honesty, um, it's about hard work. I mean, if you, if, if you want to be better than everyone else, you just have to work harder than everyone else, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, um, you brought up like a handmade Tale, right? So I would love to be binging on all of my favorite shows all the time, but I think about the people who aren't and who are working. And so like, instead of watching like three shows, I'll watch one. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you, and people tell me all the time, they're like, well, I just don't have time to do it. And it's like, well, you make time. And one thing I have my students do and, and they groan when I make them do it, but it's true is I make them live a, live a day. And basically carry it in a little book that, you know, they write down what they're doing and when they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And the thing that they notice is that they have a lot more time than they think they do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of little things are, are draining their time. And so if you start looking at it like that, you can start eliminating little things here and there. And you can start freeing up that time to to do the necessary work. But that's that's the biggest piece of advice. And it's the only thing I've learned that's really, really true. <laughs> Well, that's, yeah, that's probably right on the money. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's the most obvious thing, obviously, but it's, it, it's so true. Um, it just, you yeah, but to... you lose track of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the easiest thing in the world, and I, I tell students this all the time, the easiest thing in the world is to not write. Mm-hmm. Period. You know, um, people, people every day don't write. <laughs> most people don't. And writers don't either. I'm shocked continually by meeting writers who, who don't write in some form, even on a weekly basis, you know, mm-hmm. they're just waiting on inspiration to hit. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. You have to train yourself to work and write. And I think after a while that, that pays off dividends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, like I said, we're getting near the end here and I, uh, always ask this question, but what music have you been listening to lately? Oh man. Uh, so let me see. So I just got done with a road trip where I had to, I was going around interviewing some people. Uh, so I had, I had some interesting times. I, I just listened to, um, George Harrison's all, all things must pass. Mm-hmm. Um, went all the way through that. I actually went on a really big Kanye West run for a minute. Oh boy. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because it's, you want to talk about toxic masculinity <laughs> that boiled down on the track, you know? Uh, yeah. It's like the most, it's like the most insecure person in the world puffing out his chest and pretending mm-hmm. to be secure. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me see what else. Oh, I, I've been, I'm, I'm a big Oasis guy. Oh yeah. Wow. Uh, I really, really like Oasis. So I've been listening to them lately <laughs> and, uh, I had Neil Young after the gold rush. Mm. The other thing I was listening nice. to. Nice. So. Very, very good. So. Yeah. Uh, you ought to listen to my podcast with Stephen Hyden, uh, about, uh, <laughs> He uh, is obviously an Oasis fan, and then I had the temerity to suggest that Blur might be better. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's you know that's the funniest thing about that is people don't like to talk about it. But if you are a fan of Oasis or Blur, you are just it's never going away. I mean, it was like that. It was that one day that they both released their album, and it just forever changed uh, fans. 
Oasis. Yeah, I'm an Oasis guy. I, Interesting. I have been, and I'm, I'm unapologetic about it. <laughs> I, am, um, I am a really, really dedicated fan. I actually, so this is a quick little story I've never told anybody. So um, I had tickets to see Oasis, and I had tickets to see them in Indianapolis. Mm. And this was right before they broke up. And I don't know if you remember this, but I was I was getting ready to leave with a couple of buddies of mine to go see Oasis, and and th- you know this was like my generation's Beatles for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I know a Blur fan doesn't want to hear that. <laughs> so uh, so we were getting ready to leave, and it came over the radio as soon as we got in the car that they had been involved in a car wreck mm. in Indianapolis mm. and had canceled the concert. Mm. So that was the one opportunity I had to see Oasis oh, man. by a car wreck. Really, really sad. <laughs> Wow. Well, yeah, no, I, I like Oasis. I, there's nothing wrong with Oasis. Um, I don't want it. We don't have to, I've already done this. We don't have to, we don't have to talk about, about this. Uh, I know I'm wrong. Right. So, anyway, well, um, is there anything else I didn't ask you about that, that you want to get out there before we go? No, this has been a great conversation. Thank you. I, I've uh, exceeded my expectations and, uh, it'll be out on Friday and I'll send you a link and I hope we talk again soon and I look forward to see whatever else you're doing. So fantastic, man. Keep in touch. Thanks a lot.
you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast everywhere it's available, which includes iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. It really helps. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Until next time.